0: Welcome back to another ESMO special on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, featuring your two favorite podcast hosts, Dr. Michael Fernando and myself, Dr. Josh Hurwitz. How are you, Mikey?
1: I'm good, Josh. Um, it is day four of our epic ESMO voyage, but um, still still feeling good, still powering through it.
0: Yeah, so much stuff to get through. So why don't we it really is get the ball rolling? And Michael, do you want to start us off?
1: Absolutely, so today we're talking about the adjuvant and neoadjuvant breast cancer highlights uh, A lot of interesting stuff here as always In fact, there's too much to fit into one episode And so this is going to be the first of two episodes we're going to do on early breast cancer The second episode is going to be out tomorrow And we will talk about all of the highlights for early breast cancer Because it's the one part that you'd think Oh, you know, you can't really do better than what we already do But, spoiler alert you can. We always do. And
0: guys, we apologise that if tomorrow is not more adjuvant breast, we just found something exciting to talk about. And I feel our hit rate for what's coming next is sometimes not as high as we would like it to be.
1: Yeah, we can be a little bit attention deficit like that. But um, that's what happens when you pay, play loose and fast with scheduling. So the first study we're going to look at is a update in the form of an exploratory analysis of the MONARCH-E trial of adjuvant abemaciclib in patients with high risk hormone receptor positive and HER2 negative breast cancer, specifically looking at the prognostic and predictive impact of estrogen and progesterone receptor expression and key 67 expression. Just to refresh your memory, the MONARCH-E study was a study that enrolled patients with no positive early breast cancer that were defined as high risk, and the Definition of high risk is that patients had to have at least four positive lymph nodes or had one to three positive lymph nodes in combination with either a grade three histopathology, a tumour of at least five centimetres in size, or centrally assessed elevated K67 status, which was defined as greater than 20% positivity in tumour cells. Abemocyclib is now globally approved as a standard of care for these patients with high-risk early breast cancer and received an NCCN Cat 1 rating in this setting. There is currently an access program in Australia, but I'm sure it will hit the PBS very soon.
0: Only time, very short time, I assure you. Not yeah, that I'm it, the one that does the PBS, but
1: I'm pretty sure it will happen. I would say probably we're looking at early next year at this rate because it's uh, it's become very uh, quickly taken up. A key 67 of greater than 20% is prognostic of breast cancer outcomes because it imparts a likely higher aggression of the original cancer, but is not predictive of the efficacy of bemocyclid in this setting. The objective of this exploratory analysis was to evaluate the expression of ERPR and key 67 and determine their prognostic and predictive impact. The way they did it is they divided patients in the intention to treat population into two cohorts. The first the majority were high risk based on clinico-pathological features. And the second cohort, which only included 9% of the 5,637 original patients, were patients with high risk based on the key 67 index of greater than or equal to 20%. The expression of ER, PR, and key 67 were determined... By immunohistochemistry analysis of the baseline tumour tissue, the key 67 was tested centrally in untreated tissue, and the ERPR expression was tested locally when available. The statistical analyses for this study were performed in the overall Intention to Treat population and in the Cohort 1 population, uh, using the subpopulation treatment effect pattern plot, or STEP, analysis of invasive disease-free survival across ranges of ERPR and key 67 expression. So we'll break these down one by one, but I think it's pretty quick because, spoiler alert, the benefit of a is pretty consistent across all expressions. So starting off with key 67 the step analysis basically looked at patients who had key 67s of 1% to greater than 80%, and the hazard ratio across all of those subgroups was pretty flat hovering around the 0.6. So the median K67 does not appear to predict the benefit of adjuvant abemaciclib. Regardless of your key 67 expression, you're going to have a fairly consistent benefit of adjuvant abemaciclib. Remember, all of these patients have, by definition, high-risk disease. So it's not like we're suddenly saying, oh, Key 67 with 3% is lower risk. These are all patients with a high risk of recurrence. We have similar stories with ER and PR expression where the hazard ratio remains pretty stable, uh, which is interesting, Josh, because ER and PR expressions are always sort of warning signs for patients with bad biology, if, particularly if, if you've got someone who's hormone receptor positive basically on a technicality with like 10 20% expression.
0: Look, yeah, it's, uh, it's complex and also can be a little bit scary because people like to know what this means. And although we can say it confers a worse prognosis, you can't 100% say because there's always people that have high ER expression that will recur, and people who have triple negative breast cancer and they'll never recur. And it's just a very difficult, uh, you know, landscape.
1: Exactly, you are dealing with probabilities here rather than certainties, but what I do like about this is that it is giving as you as you sort of said there josh, it's giving clinicians both tools to look at in terms of e r p r and key sixty seven expression, but also giving them confidence that if you have high risk by the definition of the original monarchy study, you are going to benefit or you are likely to benefit from abemaciclib, regardless of the key 67 expression or the ERPR expression. It is worth noting, though, that uh, a couple of confidence intervals do cross the line of equivalence at 1. Uh, patients with lower ER expression, really anything below 92%, the confidence interval does cross 1. But again, you can't really um, say much more than, oh, it's a thing that happens. And also patients with a very low PR expression of 5% or less or higher PR expression of around 70% or greater, the hazard ratio does cross that uh, line of equivalence of one. This is more just sort of a curiosity than anything else. Would it change your desire to give a high-risk breast cancer patient a bemacyclic? I really don't think it would. The only real thing to take away is is something that I guess at some level we already knew, which is that the expression of PR, that's the progesterone receptor, appears to be prognostic. So not uh, predictive of the benefit of a but prognostic. So tumours that are PR negative have a worse prognosis, but the benefit is maintained despite this. So for ER, ERPR positive tumours, the invasive disease-free survival of 48 months was 86.7% versus 81.5% with a hazard ratio of 07 that was statistically significant. And then you take the patients who are ER positive but PR negative. The 48-month IDFS rate was 80% versus 68%, with a hazard ratio of 0.58, which, again, was statistically significant. So if we're looking at numbers, if you have a high-risk tumor, you're more likely to benefit from a bemocyclib, or the magnitude may be better. So that's it's, again, a little bit of icing on the cake for what we already knew, I guess. To conclude with this study, using the step analysis evaluating the IDFS hazard ratios up to 54 months, of the, which was the median follow-up in the original study, adjuvant abemaciclib plus endocrine therapy demonstrated consistent treatment benefit regardless of the level of ER, PR, or key 67 expression. This supports adjuvant abemaciclib in patients with hormone receptor-positive HER2-negative high-risk early breast cancer. And is a feather in the cap of Abemaciclib, really, because I think it's going to become very commonly used. As we said, it's not on the Australian Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme just yet, but it will be there soon. It's coming to a PBS store near you. A P- <laughs> coming, Yes, coming to a blockbuster video near you. That's it. Josh, why don't you take our next study, which is about tumor infiltrating lymphocytes.
0: I would love to. And Michael, I think we can probably agree that this episode is very heavy on the science. So if you're lost, we'll be making sure that those links are in the description. They're very much worth a read and make sure you
1: rate and subscribe and leave us a lovely review about how much we yak. Uh, So (laughs) moving. Yes, because we know that you all come here to listen to us yak and not for any science or education. So this study is quite interesting. So it's looking for an association
0: of tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes with recurrence scores in patients who are hormone receptor-positive early breast cancer. It's a translational analysis from four prospective multi-center trials. So the background of what we know is that HR, hormone receptor-positive breast cancer, Profound changes over the last 20 years, just like what Michael said, that wasn't available five years ago apart from on trial. What they've found, though, is that things like Oncotype DX actually can inform us, based on risk stratification, how effective chemotherapy is and how likely the patient should need it. It's a genomic assay, right? And it's got great quality evidence. They know that the immunogenicity of hormone receptor positive breast cancers is hit or miss meaning that our more aggressive tumours or triple negative counterparts or HER2 have high immunogenicity versus hormone receptor positive. Thus, in this world, immunotherapy hasn't really taken off. The clinical value of tumour infiltrating lymphocytes or TILs in hormone receptor positive breast cancer might be unearthed. This might give us a paradigm shifting answer. Tune in and we'll tell you very soon. Before I start, what are tumour infiltrating lymphocytes? Michael, I do this every time we mention it, but we'll all eventually remember it. So it's Yeah, consist- but
1: please tell us again, because okay. I always
0: forget. Great, so do I, so I don't feel so bad. It consists of all lymphocytic cell populations that have invaded the tumour tissue. Tills have been described in a number of solid tumours, including breast cancer, and are an emerging and important biomarker in predicting efficacy and outcomes of treatment probably immunotherapy the aim of this is to look at the correlation between recurrence scores based on that oncotype dx test i spoke to you about and tumor infiltrating lymphocytes this has not been investigated this is groundbreaking and by having a deeper understanding potentially will help guide future trials and future treatment therapies so they enrolled patients from four different prospective trials across italy 15 centers. I'm sure all of the locations were just gorgeous. The methods were that Oncotype DX based RS was considered both a continuous and as a categorical value. So I think that was at a baseline and they considered low to be zero to 10, intermediate to be 11 to 25 and a high to be 26 to 100. For those who haven't seen one of these Oncotype DX scores, they kind of Break it down and it helps guide a clinician on how they should treat their hormone receptor positive breast cancer patients. They had TILS, I'm going to abbreviate it as TILS, to have low being 0 to 10, intermediate 11 to 59, and higher 60 or more. Results so 811 patients were initially included, available. Recurrent scores were seen in 810 and TIL levels were found in 455 patients. So matched evaluations between these two were about 450. So majority of the cohort were pre postmenopausal T1 node negative disease and there were a number of grade 2 luminal B tumors which are very much the more aggressive type luminal B and the recurrence score median across this cohort was 16 and the median TILs was about 5%. But this is the average, this isn't the analysis that we're looking at. Uh, when we took a look at the results for the second section, these were also statistically significant, and they found a weekly positive linear correlation between tumor infiltrating lymphocytes and recurrence scores, which was statistically significant. The cases of intermediate to high TILs with enriched high recurrence scores, had a p-value of 0.006. Looking at that small cohort, so 26% of patients who had a high genomic risk also had greater than 10% TILs, where only 13% of high TILs were associated with a low recurrence score, meaning that you're likely to see a higher TILs with higher recurrence score. When you look at the subgroups, as expected, luminal B patients were at higher risk of being of having a higher occurrence scores, which is almost the more aggressive the tumour, right? In the whole cohort with high genomic risk, both luminal A and luminal B were found to have an enrichment of higher TILs, greater than 10%. But the summary of that, and it's a little confusing, but my understanding is that if you've got a more aggressive tumour and you've got a very high recurrence score, you're likely to have a high tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, whereas if you have a low recurrence score, you're less likely to have that association. This isn't a correlation. This isn't a causation. I think there's an association. But what they've found is that the immunogenomic model allows for identification of a subgroup of patients simultaneously exhibiting traits of marked biological aggressiveness parallel to features of immune activation. I stole that from the slide. I don't sound that smart normally. And the evidence suggests that immunotherapy efficacy may be enhanced in certain subgroups and selection is key here. So if you can find that subgroup, you're likely to find a cohort of patients that will probably be res- responsive to immunotherapy. And this is an exciting, a potential additive treatment to hormone, the hormone receptor space. I think that was my summary, Michael. Did you have any questions for me? Nothing at all. I was, that was a little it's, brief, I'm sorry.
1: It's, it's still fairly confusing, I guess. It'll become less confusing when this is actually something that we start to use in common practice and we can see and have actual experience with how TILs can affect the trajectory of a treatment. Oh, exactly. And
0: we don't know yet. And there's no kind of treatment that's being correlated with this, but it's future from a research perspective. It's exciting.
1: Very exciting.
0: Michael as the budding surgeon in out of the two of us, why don't you uh, give us a, a flash dance of our final third article for today?
1: Not sure that a flash dance will work in a purely audi- auditory medium Josh and in terms of the uh, budding surgeon comment, I always tell my patients they would never want me to do their surgery because I'm all thumbs. However, this article. Is actually quite well catered to someone who is all thumbs because it's about the omission of breast surgery after neoadjuvant systemic therapy for invasive cancer. This is following in the footsteps of some of the recent research we've seen in the rectal cancer space, particularly the DMMR rectal cancer space, where neoadjuvant immunotherapy leads to very high PCR rates, neoadjuvant chemo radiotherapy has been deemed potentially suitable for organ preserving, uh, for an organ preserving approach of surveillance. And so the authors here have attempted to take these applications of less surgery is better, which is quite frankly true, and applied to breast cancer. So the background of this is that We know that there are exceptional responders to neoadjuvant systemic treatment for breast cancer, especially those with HER2 positive and triple negative breast cancer, where neoadjuvant therapy is very much a standard of care. The question here is, how can you identify these exceptional responders? And do we have confidence that surgery may not be necessary? Could we stratify... The, and identify these patients based on image guided vacuum assisted core biopsy after chemotherapy, which is utilizing a technique pioneered at MD Anderson and other centers with a stringent selection criteria, which is able to reduce the false negative rate for PCR to less than 5%. So you're minimizing the risk of missing patients and offering them the possibility of no surgery, which a lot of patients do feel very apprehensive about. So this study has been going since 2017, so six years at time of recording. The inclusion criteria, patients had to be greater than 40 years old. They had to have triple negative or HER2 positive invasive breast cancer measuring less than five centimetres. They had to have a nodal status of either N0 or N1, which translates to less than four abnormal auxiliary lymph nodes on initial ultrasound with a biopsy if they're suspicious. Patients had to receive any standard uh, neoadjuvant systemic therapy and they had to have tumor shrinkage from remember it was less than five centimeters at baseline that tumor had to shrink to less than or equal to two centimeters on the final what would be pre-surgical breast imaging exclusion criteria uh, included prior ipsilateral breast cancer current pregnancy t4 or t3 disease clinical progression greater than 20 percent in the breast or new evidence of nodal metastases or distant metastases So where this is much like rectal cancer. This is a sphere where any indication of high risk, you're not going to mess about. You're going to proceed to surgery. But there are a significant proportion of patients with these very small, very low risk cancers. And if we can avoid surgery, then that's never a bad thing. The presented data was from part one of the trial, which was the feasibility phase. In terms of the cohorts, basically the patients who um, had residual disease on their vacuum-assisted core biopsy went straight to standard surgery. But for the patients with no residual disease, they had no breast surgery and commenced surveillance. The primary endpoint was ipsilateral breast tumour recurrence, free survival, at six months, one, two, three, and five years. Those were the time points that they checked. Secondary endpoints were the need for biopsy to investigate suspicious lesions on follow-up, quality of life, as well as correlative data on circulating tumour cells and ctDNA. And finally, they are looking at overall survival and disease-free survival, which I suspect will come after a very long follow-up period. In terms of the patient demographics, 58 patients were assessed and 50 patients were enrolled. 38% did not have a PCR after neoadjuvant therapy and went on to standard of care surgery. 62% 62% of patients had a PCR and then had their surgery omitted. The initial uh, tumour size was a medium of 2.8 centimetres. 82% were clinically known And in terms of the biology breakdown, 58% were HER2 positive and 42% were triple negative. The final median uh, size of these tumours on imaging was 0.9 centimetres and 34% had a radiological complete response. In terms of the primary objective, which is ipsilateral breast tumour recurrence, at three years, 100% of patients were disease-free, and obviously, as a result, 100% 100 of patients were still alive at three years. The median follow-up has been 38.4 months, with the longest being 51.8 months. In in terms of the exploratory analysis of circulating tumour cells, very difficult to say because only two patients were found to be CTC positive at baseline, two different patients at six months and one further patient at 12 months. All of these patients were different, so no patient had more than one detection. So in conclusion, it is potentially feasible, potentially viable for patients with a biopsy-confirmed pathological complete response after neoadjuvant therapy to avoid surgery. These are fairly low-risk cancers, though we are talking HER2-positive and triple-negative cancers, so there's always going to be an element of risk. But 100% of them have survived three years, which is fantastic. So very promising results. There's limited uh, data on circulating tumor cells and CT DNA, and the exploratory analysis of these is ongoing. We're still waiting for additional follow-up for this trial and further clinical trials evaluating this approach. But Josh, maybe a further step in the direction where patients don't need surgery, which would be great.
0: And yeah, that would be crazy, turning breast cancer into a surgical-free zone where oncologists... A medical
1: a medically managed condition.
0: A medically miraculously managed condition. Um, that didn't yes. work. Either way, join us next... Time, which is tomorrow, for our second breast cancer episode, because there is so much to cover. The next one will be more clinically focused, with some updates and some interesting immunotherapy in hormone receptor positive. So, stay tuned. This is going to be exciting with a couple of really great researchers, including Shereen Loy, who is a you know favorite down at the Peter Mac in Melbourne. Uh, so, look her up; she's uh, got a plethora of research out there. So, I am looking forward to talking to you about those.
1: Yes, very exciting. And we look forward to having an Australian representative at ESMO. Australian. (laughs) Please never do that again. No, we'll see you tomorrow. Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.